This is Decentralized, the Decentralized Trials and Research Podcast. We gather here with friends and guests to talk about the latest ways to make research and clinical trials around the world more inclusive, more accessible, more resilient, and more sustainable, all by using decentralized methods. This podcast is recorded live on Clubhouse every Friday, 12 to 1 Eastern, on the TGIF DCT show at the Decentralized Trials Club. You can join the live sessions and add your voice every Friday at noon Eastern time with the free Clubhouse app by following the Decentralized Trials Club. And of course, subscribe to this podcast on your favorite platform to get notified of new episodes. Following the club and subscribing will also help you stay current for any of the bonus content we may drop. And now it's time to decentralize. Well, um, it is great to have folks joining us here today. If you are new to joining uh, TJF DCT, this is a gathering we have every Friday here on Clubhouse in the Decentralized Trials Club. We cover different topics each week related to decentralized clinical trials and the ability to make studies more accessible for participation. If you're new here, give a click on the top left of your screen where it says decentralized trials. You can learn more about the club. You can follow it. You can access replays of past gatherings that we've had uh, that have been recorded dating back to December. And you can click ahead and see some of the topics we have coming up, whether they've hit on themes uh, related to digital measurements and digital endpoints, diversity and inclusion, data flow, regulatory considerations, and so on. If there are topics that are of interest to you, even if we've covered them before, there's usually more to be said. Let Amir and I know through Clubhouse, through Twitter, LinkedIn, email, whatever method works best for you. Let us know what topics you'd like to see us cover here. These topics come from you, the folks in our audience and our community. If you'd like to join as a co-host, also flag that so that we can include you just like we are, Adam, Ellen, and Wayne today. Today's topic is going to dig in around reimbursement, but we're going to broaden it beyond just reimbursement of financial compensation and talk even more expansively around returning of value to participants, whether it's reimbursement, whether it's sharing data and evidence, what are the other um, deliverables back that are meaningful to participants in research in addition to hope and the possibility of accessing investigational product. This topic was proposed to us by our friend Adam Sampson at CureBase. So Adam, if you wouldn't mind coming off mute, introduce yourself for the audience and maybe share a bit of perspective on what about this topic was particularly interesting to you that you wanted to bring it forward here on uh, Clubhouse today. Adam, are you able? There you go. Yes. Uh, thanks so much, Craig. And, and thanks, everybody, for having me. I am a uh, longtime listener, but first time speaker here on TGIF DCT. So, uh, yeah, went to go off mute and it made me change some settings there. But uh, yeah, I think that this is an incredibly important topic, one that we could take in just so many directions. Um, 
and really looking forward to diving in with the, the excellent folks on the panel, as well as um, those who have joined here um, and are just listening at the moment. So, you know, over the course of my career, I started um, working directly with patients at a large multi-therapeutic site. Um, so I really got to see how, you know, the impact, and this was in, uh, in Miami and uh, in some underserved communities. And, you know, we sometimes think that these stipends that are given because of the, you know, the size of the stipend, maybe it doesn't make that big of a difference. But, you know, to some people even getting, you know, 10 or 15 or $20 as part of a visit um, can make the difference of whether or not they're able to, you know, afford getting on the bus and actually coming for their visit or, um, or being able to, you know, leave and get lunch afterwards. Uh, and then moving into the CRO, um, uh, academic and pharma worlds, um, you know, again, being part of those discussions around what the stipends should be, um, but also what are the other type of incentives that we might be able to give people that are, you know, beyond just um, monetary stipends. I mean, is it, you know, returning the results? Um, is it something that we can do uh, in terms of, you know, providing them rideshare access um, and being part of those discussions sometimes, you know, not always being thrilled with uh, the perspectives that come out of that around uh, just how important it is that we include this and, and not see that as just a, uh, you know, a burden um, of paying those type of fees. And then um, I've been a CareBase for the past couple of years. Um, we're a, a provider of um, services and, and software in the decentralized space. And we've done a lot to try and think about how we can optimize um, these type of uh, incentives or compensation structures for participants um, and learned a lot about, you know, because we're in a decentralized uh, space, not everybody wants to receive things through PayPal. Um, how, what are other ways that we can get these payments um, to research participants? Uh, does it make sense to do micropayments and some of these other strategies that are being employed? So yeah, really looking forward to, to diving in and, and talking uh, with more on the panel about this. Fabulous setup, Adam. And thank you again for bringing this, uh, this topic forward. Um, Amir, do you have any thoughts or reflections just based on Adam's opening before we continue on with some of our other guests? And I think like Adam said, there's so many aspects that we can dig into. So I'll, I'll keep quiet for the moment and let's listen from uh, Ellen and Wayne and others, and then I'll definitely come in later. Brilliant. For those of you just joining, uh, welcome. We're going to continue with our uh, guests on this topic for a few minutes more. Remember, by the bottom of the hour, at half past, we'll open things up for your questions, ideas, perspectives on today's topic. So let's continue on. Adam set this up really nicely, Wayne. Um, as he was sharing a bit on the payment side, on uh, travel support, on micro, even suggesting areas around micropayments. Wayne, if you don't mind, uh, come off mute, introduce yourself for the audience, share some of your initial perspectives on this topic, and maybe also why is this relevant or different as we're thinking about decentralization of our trials? For sure, Greg, thank you very much for... Uh for the introduction and for the opportunity to be here. Um, hello everyone, my name is Wayne Baker and I'm the Chief Commercial Officer at Greenfire. Um, one of the things I enjoy the most about my role is the opportunity to engage directly with our clients in all the channels that we support, 
um, as we have solutions to help manage the logistical and financial challenges and burdens that the industry faces and, and all throughout the, the financial workflows in clinical trials. But I have the opportunity to meet with clients um, that are sites uh, that are leveraging our solutions directly with sponsors and then also with CROs and, and typically all around the globe, um, pandemic notwithstanding, you know, uh, routinely would would travel to to meet with uh, our customers and prospective customers to be able to learn and hear from them some of their uh, interpretations about how they're tackling the channel the challenges that the industry is facing, and I think similar to what one of the other uh, outcomes that decentralized trials bring to the industry, you know, is an ability to be able to offer flexibility um, and, uh, you know, support the the needs that patients have wherever they may be, such as to to not bind them to the, the traditional model of having to travel to a site for every single visit and having to potentially, you know, foot the bill or coordinate the logistics on their own to be able to make that a reality, which, as we all know, can can interfere with, uh, you know, the interest of a participant and uh, their family members uh, in the first place to participate in a study um, or their ability to, to stay enrolled. So I'm thrilled uh, that we have solutions here at Greenfire, but going beyond that, you know, what the industry has been doing and, and in particular with some of the, the capabilities that the decentralized or the, the hybrid model has, has unlocked for participants and their families around the world. So looking forward to talk about some of these specific areas that we can help enable as we think about um, you know, moving the needle uh, in the in the marketplace um, by way of further leveraging the, the decentralized and and accommodating and coordinating uh, solutions as well. Thanks so much, Wayne. It's great to have you here for this topic. Ellen gets welcome. Uh, there are so many different dimensions around this as we think about um, straight considerations around. Uh, payment and reimbursement, ensuring that, uh, say, travel and other access needs are being met, but then even thinking more expansive about what are the other drivers of value in, in terms of deliverables that we can think about for patients and participants. Introduce yourself for anyone in our community here who has not met you before and share some of your perspectives on the topic today. Sure. Thank you so much, Craig. Hi, everybody. My name is Ellen Getz. I'm the Director of R&D Patient Partnerships at CSL Bearing. For those who are unfamiliar with CSL, we're a mid-sized global biotechnology company that includes CSL Plasma, Securus, which is our vaccine company, and CSL Bearing. And we focus predominantly on rare diseases. Um, and we're really committed to putting patients first in discovering, developing, and delivering biotherapeutics and vaccines. And at CSL, I gather input into our clinical development and operations from patients, care partners, study participants, healthcare professionals, and researchers. And I work with our organization to develop strategies and plans to support patient engagement and appreciation throughout the life cycle of our studies. And I was scrolling through the list. I recognize many folks on the call today here at Clubhouse who I had the pleasure of working with in my former role at Cisgrip. Um, the Center for Information and Study on Clinical Research Participation, which is a global nonprofit. Uh, I wore many hats there and supported our grassroots 
community engagement and education efforts. And a lot of my remarks today are, are going to be based to a large extent on the survey research that Syscript has been regularly conducting on thousands of uh, patients around the world, as well as feedback that CSL has received when we conduct patient advisory boards. And I think this is such an interesting topic and really appreciate the invitation to join today's discussion. So thank you so much for bringing me here. Um, I think how we define value as a sponsor company and how patients define value is increasingly at odds. And when I speak with our clinical operations teams and our clinical development teams, the way we talk about value is really revolving around how we improve recruitment and retention, how we make our protocols less burdensome for our participants, as well as the performance of our studies and how it all impacts um, ROI. But what we hear from patients is that they're really looking for control and convenience. And I'd love to break that down even further across a few different phases, for example, before the trial begins, while it's underway, and afterwards. And I think Wayne and Adam, you guys have done a great job really kicking off this discussion. I think of a lot of what I'll be talking about is, is directly aligned um, with, for example, before the trial begins, patients are really valuing information about risks and benefits, study purpose, types of medical procedures required in confidentiality, and also knowing that the study staff and trial participants are diverse is of great value, especially among Black and Hispanic communities. And after study, we recognize how important it is to share back a summary of study results, even individualized results, in keeping patients informed of future studies, as well as more information about disease management. And what we hear too is the importance of getting updates as the drug hopefully moves to market. And I think from the patient experience or participant experience in the study, a major value is really reported on minimizing burden and reducing disruption. And what Wayne was alluding to around offering flexible options to reduce this burden is so incredibly important. So I'd love to talk more about some of the DCT aspects as well as communication across various technologies that we're exploring to offer flexible options. Ellen, you, um, you set that up so well, and you also mentioned some of the insights that you've um, seen both in your journey at CSL and previously at Syscript. Uh, can you drop a few clues or breadcrumbs for us? What types of insights have you seen to help get this conversation going, um, whether through patient advisory form or some of the uh, perceptions and insights work at Syscript in the past? Absolutely. I think what's overarching in my mind is that there's really not one preference or one need that applies to everyone. And study participant preferences for one individual may change over time, over the course of their disease, over the course of their experience in the study. So I work very closely with our study teams to implement options for patients to choose from in our studies, really assessing different DCT aspects, as well as how patients may prefer to receive communications from the sites, and really trying to incorporate these flexible options. But what I've been learning, especially now in my role within Pharma, is that customization, it is so incredibly important, and we're always talking about how we can personalize our trials, but it also, in some ways, is the enemy of efficiency. And I'd love, you know, to, to talk about that further. It just it does create a lot of coordination challenges. The more customization we're looking to offer, I think there's the kind of greater uh, distance between where we are currently and then the types of options and what patients are looking for. So I'm really trying to work with our teams to create a progressive patient experience. 
And I think our clinical operations teams are really on board with this. There's a lot of interest to implement. It's just trying to figure out how and how we can systemize that approach is really challenging. Um, I'm, I'm excited to be part of this new group here at CSL where we can really try to streamline or centralize key learnings that come up. Um, but it's really a challenge and I'm sure it's shared by other members of our industry. Adam, I'd love to turn back over to you as you're thinking about some of the, um, the, the feedback that Wayne shared, but also Ellen's share around uh, choice and flexibility. As you're thinking about how to best engage participants in research and meeting their needs, you'd mentioned some may have ride-sharing needs, others may have very different needs. Um, how do you find balance in deploying solutions for those participants, not leaving people behind and not making assumptions that the, the one path that uh, may seem right to a study team may not be right for all? It's a great um, question, Craig, and, and something occurred to me that I'll hit on after that when, when Ellen was speaking. And I think that the one of the main things that we can do, um, and this speaking to the broader kind of looking at uh, making our trials more patient-centric, dare I say, or, or, or more inclusive of, of understanding patients' needs is, you know, in the same way we say engage with regulators early and often, I think that engaging with patient populations um, and the design of these type of uh, trials is, is really something that is critical. Uh, and especially as we, you know, start moving towards um, decentralized methods, which in and of themselves you know, they create additional complexity, but ultimately at the end of the day, if that, you know, is what's best for the, the patient population, we'll make research participation um, better for them and ultimately get us the results that we need for the trials. And that's really the way that we need to lean. Um, and something that, you know, occurred to me, so I do think just to finish that point, you know, talking with patients is something that we've gotten increasingly good at, but it's by no means the norm. Um, I do think that, you know, increasingly I'd like to see that as just kind of the standard, much like we would go to, you know, key opinion leaders, um, whether they're MDs or others, experts in the, in the space in the therapeutic area, that over time we would uh, more and more be leveraging individual patient groups or, or other ways to get this type of feedback. I do think that by engaging with a patient community, which many companies now, you know, not just CureBase, there are others, you know, Medible and others out there that have these types of patient communities where we can tap into that knowledge. Um, and what we're finding is oftentimes these communities are, are really interested in providing that type of feedback and glad to do so. Um, one thing I might add here while we're on the topic is that, in my opinion, these people, much like a KOL um, that's an MD, these people should be paid for their time as well. Um, and I've kind of gotten some pushback here and there on that and this idea that, you know, why would we be paying patients for that? But they are also devoting their time to these activities. Um, and that seems fair to me. I mean, it's not direct participation in a clinical trial, but it's, it's part of the design itself and part of, you know, being in that clinical trial, um, arena, if you will. Um, and then the last point I just wanted to hit is around, you know, it, it occurred to me as Ellen was talking that the the fact that so as far as motivators, right, we we all like to think that altruistic reasons and we hear that stated a lot 
we, we hope that people participate in trials because they want to give back um, to science, because they want to, you know, help to inform the next generation about their particular condition. And I think that that is quite often the case, but we all know there are other, you know, there's phase one trials with healthy participants. There's certainly justification um, across all therapeutic areas for offering stipends, um, but access to novel treatments um, is certainly oftentimes a motivator. And you almost have to ask if, given the fact that we're now really trying as an industry to provide more flexible options, um, even though that might increase complexity and be a little uncomfortable for companies as we get into it, is that in and of itself um, providing value and a way for us to help motivate these uh, patients to want to participate in our trials, similar to you know how we might give them $20 to travel to a site. Well, you know, if we're traveling to their home, it seems to me that you know, intrinsically, that is a, a motivator and a, and a benefit um, that we would be bringing, a, you know, access to a novel treatment to them in a way that is, you know, far more accessible. Uh, Wayne, we are hearing so much of uh, uh, trying to create choice, flexibility for, for participants, very often coming down from patients themselves as more and more including patient input during their design and planning. Um, it sometimes feels like choice and flexibility to study teams can feel like chaos and redundancy, uh, where we may need to have multiple solutions available for what might have felt like one problem in the past. Um, how, how do you see managing that at scale inside of an organization like Greenfire? How do you see uh, the ability to offer patients the ability to meet them where they are with their needs, which may be different from patient A versus patient B, or as Ellen mentioned, may be different just even from within one patient based on where they are in the course of their study journey. So that's a great question, uh, Craig, and it actually uh, was, was already on my mind to respond to a point that Ellen made around, you know, trying to create custom options, right? Um, that align with the needs of participants and sites and really the, the sponsor community as we're trying to execute on these studies. Um, and, and how do we do that without injecting so much uh, challenge and uh, inefficiencies and even cost for that matter? Because let's face it, custom every time, you know, has a price tag. Um, so as a solution provider to the industry and as one that, you know, really values the, the feedback that we get from the user, users of our solution and the, the customers uh, that, are, that are acquiring our solutions, um, we take very serious um, that feedback to try and shape and mold, you know, the future offering that we have uh, and make available here at Greenfire. Um, but one thing for certain is we don't want to be a, a custom solution provider each and every time. Of course, we want to listen to the unique needs that any individual um, uh, clinical trial design or any particular sponsor may be bringing to us um, and happy to roll up our sleeves and, and try to tackle that, that challenge. But I think the, the most sustainable way is to be able to offer a solution that has um, configurability 
to it, right? Um, and it has uh, the majority of the elements that are necessary for success already solved for, but it allows for configurability as opposed to true customization where you have to, to build it from the ground up each and every time. So we've had some, some really great success with that. And, and particularly as it was um, uh, uh, related to uh, some of these remote type of activities that are occurring and the increasing um, validation of compensation for time and inconvenience or in some ways, you know, compliance with remote activities, whether it be fulfilling the diary requirements or, um, you know, percent time, you know, with a wearable or a, a, um, a device of, of, of any sort and unlocking that, that micropayment concept. Well, doing that in a manner that won't inject, you know, custom requirements such that it's a, it's a heavy burden on the site staff, for example, to be able to administer um, or fulfill that or more work for the, for the participant just to be able to unlock, you know, the, the exchange of, of value for their time and their inconvenience in fulfilling, you know, those critical elements that are important to the, the end state and the results of the clinical trial. So I think it's important for us as one of many solution providers and, and for those of us that are leading and making decisions about how to deploy uh, solutions in support of our trials going forward, that we do look for ways to inject configuration as opposed to just outright customization. So, Craig, I mean, so much good stuff to unpack here for sure. I'm, I'm just going to take a couple of minutes just to kind of maybe question and comment on some of the themes we've talked about. I'm going to start with the patient input one. A complex topic. The, the one thing I'll say about that is, and Adam's sort of analogy to key opinion leaders is interesting, and obviously people have been talking about that. Um, if you look at key opinion leaders, I mean, I, I hope that we don't end up having the same problems as we do with KOLs, frankly, with patient leaders. So, you know, you, you ask 10 KOLs, they'll give you 10 different opinions, right? But even worse than that, we will have KOLs that frankly haven't seen a patient in 20 years, right? They're, they're experts at being experts to pharma. And my worry is the industrialization of patient input. And, you know, I certainly don't want to see patients who their full-time job is to give input. I mean, I think there's a role for that, for sure, in terms of design people who understand clinical development. But I think relying on that population to give you specific advice about a specific trial is is not the way to go. So I think we, we do need to think about, you know, like everything else in the US, we seem to industrialize everything. I'm not sure it's always a good thing, but I think we need to think about that. And that's a bit of an elephant in the room, which I don't think people have addressed yet. In terms of incentives, I mean, I wish there was more work on this. And I know there's been a lot of work, but I still feel as a, as a industry, we're kind of failing at really looking at this more carefully. The incentives you got on one side, you know, people who very rightly advocate for people getting, you know, more compensated for their time, etc. I think maybe some of those miss the worries that people have on the ethics side, whether it's the incentives are coercive, whether it's because you're going to maybe get the wrong patients, 
uh, into trials because you're incentivizing them too much, whether you're driving placebo response with some sort of micro incentives. I mean, that's a very big topic. And frankly, I just wish we did even more rigorous work around it. I, I mean, I'm aware of some work, but it's, I just feel we could do a better job of trying to clarify for everyone, you know, what is an appropriate way to go around uh, incentives? And I like the way he kind of subtly touched on this, which is, you know, we talk about optionality and flexibility a lot. The reality is that at times that may increase cost and all, you know, and, you know, there's no question if you go to a big CRO, you can do it their way or you can do it customized. It's going to cost you a lot more. And is that really possible, especially when most drug development has been done by a small biotech? So I could say 50 other things, but I'm going to just be provocative about those couple of things just to kind of for us to think about. Thanks, Great. Amir. Craig, yeah, do you Ellen, mind if... do you want to jump in on that? Sure, I'd love to respond. Um, thanks, Amir, for your comments. I think that was something at the as we started rolling out patient advisory boards. Maybe I can address that first. Something that we had talked about was making sure we totally recognize, like you said, folks that maybe are involved with patient organizations and are really strong patient advocates, and to that are uh, attending a number of patient advisory boards. Those kinds of things. What we've learned, especially through vendors that we work with for this service, is that there's a variety of different ways that they're engaging with the community of the disease that we're trying to, to study. And I actually have not felt in any of the advisory boards we've hosted that the patients involved and our advisors here are, I guess, like you had said, kind of um, either veterans or folks that are always um, in these sessions. So I think that's um, something that we we talked about it as a team at first, but even most recently, the advisory board I was involved with last week, we had a number of folks who had just recently been diagnosed and were explaining a little bit about their disease journey and what that whole experience was like. And it was so such valuable input that we got that we could also have folks in the room who maybe were more aware of all the different resources available, having uh, had this disease for over 30 years. And so those, I think that diversity is incredibly important and something we talk a lot about as we engage with the vendors that we collaborate with in the space. But I have never felt like it's been industrialized in a, in a way where I don't feel as though I'm getting the, or that our team is getting valuable input. I, I still think any of this feedback is very helpful, but that's definitely a good thing for any company looking to put an advisory board together to make sure that they're speaking about that, about all the sources of how the vendor is going to be really recruiting advisors, making sure they're reviewing the criteria as well for diverse backgrounds. In terms of incentives, I know from speaking with our legal team um, and how we offer reimbursement, I mean, we, I know Craig, we were alluding to this earlier. We, as a company, we don't see a difference in stipends for remote trial visits versus in-person at the site. And we really abide strictly by the fair market values of what we can offer for reasonable stipends. I know that we re reimburse for reasonable travel expenses. And um, my understanding too, is that we, we pay out in increments um, really tied directly to the study visits rather than a lump sum. So those are that's some the, the guidance that we've received from our legal counsel and regulatory and compliance, but um, I'm sure Adam and Wayne can definitely weigh in here. Yeah, I do think um, you hit on a really good point, Ellen, there, and, and also Amir, and it got me thinking about just the kind of, this kind of uh, idea, not just of professional uh, patient advisory um, folks who are often working in that space, but even in um, you know, professional patients, right? So coming from, uh, you know, my days in a 
phase one clinical trial uh, clinic, you know, we oftentimes where you're offering stipends of, you know, upwards of $2,000 for multiple, you know, days where of, of stay inpatient, um, you end up having to be in a position where you're, you're really looking for um, people who, who might be trying to participate in the study multiple times or across multiple sites. And we had to put something in place with within our, our region, within our county to really try and help make sure that, you know, people are safe because we don't, you know, we're not intending for them to be participating in a trial um, more than once um, for many reasons, but certainly for their own, you know, their own health reasons. And that's something we've had to look at, I think, now on the decentralized trial side, um, verifying participant identity is is critical, right? Because if there are these, um, you know, this is human nature, right? I mean, there's an opportunity to potentially, you know, make some money on a clinical trial, but it might attract um, people who are who are looking to make money. Um, and this idea that we really need to have um, a validated way that's documented, um, whether that's, you know, through the, the telemedicine um, visit that we're conducting uh, early on as part of consent, um, or other ways, um, there are technolo technology solutions now um, that are offered, um, not here at CureBase, but but outside specialized vendors that do that. And I do think that's something that we really need to um, to take into consideration when it comes into uh, overall participant compensation and and how we um, how we look to control those type of variables as we move to a more remote type um, clinical trial environment. I would just sort of put into the mix um, organizations, tech companies, pharma sponsors are all uh, actively looking to get patient input and patient input comes from a lot of different channels. Uh, I think like every um, source that needs to be considered thoughtfully in terms of um, uh, whether that input is coming from people off the street patients who were in past clinical trials, patients from online communities, from open surveys, from um, patients at advocacy groups, from leaders of advocacy groups, or from patients that are serving as full-time advocates themselves. Uh, every source is gonna have its own lens and perspective. Uh, I think organizations just have to be thoughtful about the question they're asking and which source or sources are going to be right for that particular question. Often it's going to be a blend of, in many cases it seems today, um, going deep with some diverse cohort of patients while also going broad to get the true representation that one may need. You will never be able to convene a panel of patients that is truly representative of all of the diversity that you're seeking in your study, geographic, age, uh, gender um, uh, orientation, um, race, ethnicity, geographic coverage. It would just be the, the world's largest panel to convene, um, which is why I think uh, there's probably a few different dimensions people have to consider to get this done right. That's a great point, Craig. Hey, I see Nelson has joined us up here, and that is a reminder for everyone that we have crossed over the bottom of the hour. You are in the Decentralized Trials Club uh, here on Clubhouse. We gather every Friday for TGIF DCT, which is our casual gathering 
from 12 to 1 Eastern time with uh, folks that like to explore different topics related to decentralized clinical trials and making our studies more accessible for all. Uh, today's topic was suggested by uh, one of our participants, Adam Sampson from over at CureBase. And we have uh, some additional friends joining us as co-hosts today, including uh, Wayne Baker from Greenfire and Ellen Getz from over at CSL. This is an opportunity for you to join and share your perspective on today's topic. So take advantage of the hand raising icon at the bottom of your screen. If you have a question, idea, perspective you'd like to bring up on the stage, go ahead and hit that button. We'll bring you on up just like we are with our friend Nelson. Nelson, welcome. Feel free to come off mute, introduce yourself, share your perspective on today's topic. Hi. Everybody, thanks, Craig. Um, I'm Nelson Rutrick. I own a research site, a couple research sites in the Boston area. Um, but I, I wanted to share with everybody, not my perspective, but uh, there's actually a lot of literature on this topic. And a big portion of it is written by two people, um, Emily Largent and Holly Fernandez Lynch. They're both former Harvard Law people who moved to Penn, Medical Ethics Center. Uh, and the overwhelming amount of literature about how much you can pay participants, when you can pay participants, thinks that participants are incredibly underpaid and we should be doing much more in order to ethically compensate people, right? It's, it's tough to find any literature opposed and you can easily find lit in favor. And they've written about, they've, they're the only people really who've been running double blind randomized trials of paying people different amounts of money and assessing their deception or their willingness to take treatments that may be dangerous. Uh, and they've shown like study after study that money has no statistically significant impact, right? Now they've never assessed placebo response, which is what interests me the most my CNS site, um, but they've looked at whether people are more likely to lie when they're offered money for a trial. They aren't. Um, they ran a randomized double blind trial for it. They, they looked at paying people different amounts of money when they're all in the same trial, when those people have different incomes or they've spent different amount of times on the study. Um, they've looked at paying people to do COVID challenge trials and written papers about that. Uh, the whole breadth of lit on this, it's very easy to find ethicists in favor of paying participants much more. So I wanted to share. So I think Nelson, that's great. It's always good to have uh, data rather than opinion. I, that's exactly what I was referring to, that, that there has been work done. Uh, I, I still think it's such an important topic for us. There's something that is not wildly kind of known across the community and how do we kind of build that into um, our way of thinking around the centers. That's really helpful. And thank you for mentioning that specifically. Yeah, I'd, I'd love if they came to industry conferences. I mean, they're, they're really IRB people and are at all the IRB conferences, which early in my career, I foolishly attended, but I got to learn a little. Excellent. Hey, I see um, we have at least one other person joining us here. We were able to get you up there. Sophie, welcome back. 
Uh, it's great to see you. Please come off mute, introduce yourself, share your question or perspective on today's topic. Thanks, Craig. I'm Sophie O'Hannon. I'm a clinical scientist at a medical device company called Gala Therapeutics, uh, formerly at Boston Scientific. I think the last time I was here on stage, I was still at Boston Scientific, so this transition uh, just happened. Um, and I've been in clinical trials for 19 years at site and as well as sponsor level now. So I have been thinking about this for a long time. And yes, perspectives have changed as to, you know, how much patient data is worth, as well as how much compensation versus um, payment we need to be thinking about for patients. Wayne, I loved your, um, uh, your addition about, um, you know, kind of tailoring payments to patients based on their background, based on the trial, based on the risk, based on the commitment. But I also understand that it can be biting off a big, a big chunk. And maybe we're biting off more than we can chew if we promise, if we overpromise to, to tailor for every patient. I wonder if we came up with like a sliding scale, you know, you know how diabetic patients are treated on insulin on a sliding scale where you know you, you have to choose what level you're at and once you're once you're labeled at a, at a certain level of payment you know then that's your category and you're you're paid at that rate depending on you know what needs are need to be met um your distance your um what other care you might need, past medical history, complexity, those kinds of things. And we could make it kind of a hybrid, you know, where it's it's a little bit more tailored, but not so much that we're having to titrate payments for every single patient. And I wondered what you thought about that. This is Sophie, I'm complete. So I'm, I'm happy to, to start with a, a response on that. I think it does get a little uh, tricky once you start to consider, you know, custom payment schedules based on a participant's background. I think we've seen in the industry folks trying to align a little bit more to, you know, what the the, the requirements are of the participant and or their, their family or their caregiver. So, you know, in exchange for participation in even prior to the pandemic, what has been, you know, much more complex protocols requiring, you know, significant amount of commitment from participants and their, their families, um, you know, has, has required, you know, consideration of the, the time and the inconvenience. And, you know, we're, we're thrilled that we have developed a platform that can allow for some configurability there, as I mentioned uh, prior, um, and can allow for it to be administered in a manner that can be trusted and can stay compliant and also try and ward off um, you know, the opportunity for, you know, bad behaviors. And, and it's something that I wanted to also comment on that, that came up earlier, just basically that, you know, with our solution, we have the ability to 
to help fend off fraud and abuse and pick up on patterns where there might be some some bad actors out there that are trying to to game the system um, and you know receive compensation that that might not really be um, legitimately uh, warranted. Um, but there's there's very there, there's there's not a lot of that going on, and I, I think I would just um, encourage all of us to not not be uh, held back from trying to implement what would be good programs um, around reimbursement or compensation for um, participation in our clinical research initiatives, um, just because we're afraid of, uh, you know, what bad things could happen. And I think we're seeing more and more um, at the sponsor level and supported by the the uh, CROs and uh, now down to the the sites feeling like, um, you know, unlocking these micropayments in exchange for some of these activities that are occurring outside of the clinic and further support for compensation and reimbursement and even, you know, taking the logistical um, aspect out of the participants' hands when when possible um, to be able to drive to to greater success because then that that allows for you know the the right folks to focus on the right things for the success of the clinical study. Hundred percent agree, Wayne, and not only for uh, patient compensation for time and travel, but also as was brought up earlier, you know, sometimes we have these patient focus groups or patient advisory boards. And yeah, you know, it's patients can have often or sometimes the wrong perspective, but most of the time they don't, you know, most of the time they are trying to help and we need that perspective to design effective clinical trials that are going to have follow-up schedules and um, you know, investigations, diagnostics that are that are going to be realistic for that patient population. And now we have a requirement to increase diversity also in clinical trials. So why not go to the source, figure out a way to involve them at the root instead of, you know, uh, succumbing to our suspicion is kind of what I'm, I'm getting from what you just said. We have to find a way to... Um, you know, open up these avenues for patients and still have some safeguards in place. So I would be really interested in hearing more from you, Wayne. Well, um, whether it, it happens to be today um, or in a follow-up, I'm happy to to share some more of our perspectives and, and our learnings, you know, coming from Greenfire's experience uh, here as well. I think um, it, it, it may be worth noting that, you know, folks, for uh, for many years, have worried about you know what is the what is the fair um, uh, compensation for some of these activities, and I think um, a lot of uh, data has been captured by our organization throughout the pandemic, and we actually are are working towards trying to unlock some of this data intelligence that we've accrued over uh, almost two decades now. Um, around fair market value um, compensation regarding the, the the numerous types of activities that we ask uh, participants to engage in. So I think knowing that there could be uh, some some values um, that could uh, further corroborate the thinking at the sponsor level, 
um, to sort of create a, a safe zone to do what feels like the right thing, I think is something that we're driving towards further enabling for the industry just because we're so, so, so passionate about it. And we believe uh, that there's, there's a way we can try to help, help with that and make it reality. We have about 10 minutes left. I want to make sure we get to Brad and Fran, but really quickly, Adam, in like 30 seconds or less, there's, you mentioned the term micropayments. Wayne mentioned this term. Uh, Adam, can you give us like a really quick definition for those in the audience that aren't familiar? Certainly. Um, so unlike a um, typical structure where you might pay just at the end of every visit and then some payment at the very end, micropayments, um, we can actually, uh, if there are multiple assessments that might be done, say over the course of the week, um, or even within a day sometimes, you can be incentivizing or providing compensation uh, at those very small intervals uh, in order to um, help Apologies if uh... I'm not sure if I lost Adam or if you guys lost me. Oh, I can hear you, Craig. Um, Adam, are you still there? Yeah, did I cut off there at the end? Apologies for that. You did. But I think folks should have gotten the, the, the gist that with micropayments, we're, we're, we're breaking things down a bit more granular instead of waiting exactly. and bundling lots of activities and doing one larger payment, which might seem easier logistically, uh, just seems to add a lot of time and, and burden for some participants. And I appreciate your, your flagging that and bringing it into the conversation. Certainly. And um, one very short thing I can say there is things like digital therapeutics, where there's, you know, really, they might be completing uh, activities uh, or, or treatments um, multiple times throughout the day or the week. Those are really opportunities where micropayments we've seen have been quite successful. Let's turn over to our friend, Brad Hightower. Brad, welcome. Introduce yourself if anyone doesn't know you and share your thoughts on today's topic. Brad, do we still have you? We may have lost Brad. He might have uh, lost his connection. Brad, come back if you're still there. Let's jump actually over to Fran Ross. Fran, welcome. Introduce yourself for folks that uh, may not have met you. Share your perspective today. Hey, thanks, Craig. This is Fran Ross, um, clinical trial site sponsor, CRO consultant, yikes. Um, was really interested to hear about the work that had come out of the folks who were IRB related and wondering if there's any possibilities or impetus to also get some health authority guidance on this topic. I know from a sponsor perspective, there's a lot of fear to be increasing payments to make it look like the sponsors are paying to play for participants, but it sounds like the need is so great, perhaps the health authorities can help remove that fear factor. Ellen, Nelson, Wayne, others, um, are there any tips or guidance that you've seen out there from regulators or others that can be a good tool for Fran and others that are here with us today? 
Hi, Greg. Happy to chime in here. I think this is definitely something I'd like to explore further. And I was taking notes as Nelson was talking about the uh, researchers involved. So I'm happy to follow up with the group after speaking further with our regulatory colleagues. But I, I agree with you, Fran. I would be very interested in learning more about this. This may be one that we're parking and setting up as a future topic. Uh, we'll grab some other friends that may be closer to it from a regulatory side as well, if that's helpful. But Fran, uh, we might have to have you back to go deeper on this one. I think that Brad's audio is back with us. So Brad, come on off mute. Let's, uh, let's have you jump in the conversation, introduce yourself, share your perspective on today's topic. Or maybe not for Brad. Uh, Brad, always uh, it's always great to have, add your voice into the mix. So I'm, I'm missing you here today. But we do have Jefferson Smith. Uh, Jefferson, uh, we've got just a couple of minutes left. Please feel free to introduce yourself. Share your thoughts on today's topic. Jefferson, are you able to come off mute? Or Brad. Ah, Brad. Well, Can you hear me? You. Yes, sir. All right. Sorry about that. Apparently, my phone doesn't want to cooperate. Uh, I'll, I'll try to be very brief. But my name is Brad. I work at the site level. I just kind of want to point out, I guess, a little bit of a disconnect and maybe pose a rhetorical question. Um, I mean, as it stands, the the amount that a subject gets reimbursed is very much dependent on how well the site negotiates their budget with the sponsor. So you may see wild variation. I mean, we've enrolled trials that a site down the street's been enrolling, and we may be reimbursing a patient twice as much. So, I mean, is that a problem? And is there hope for some maybe some sort of standardization so that, you know, again, sites are still the ones really doling out these payments for an overwhelming majority of the trials we do? Is there is there hope for standardization or is there a, a need for it? That's it. Wayne, I imagine you have a lot of benchmarking data that sponsors can use when trying to determine the right reimbursement or payments, but do you see standards uh, in the future as a uh, possibility here? So similar to what I commented on uh, a, a bit ago, I think that there's uh, a glaring need and we're missing on that component um, right now in the industry. And, and just uh, as a result of our unique position, having been offering you know patient convenient solutions to the marketplace for um, more than 15 years, approaching two decades now, we have a, have a wealth of data that's available to us that you know we certainly could in aggregate share some fair market value with the industry and and we do that today um on a one-off basis certainly making sure that we keep all our client contractual obligations in mind but um we are driving towards an opportunity to unlock what we'll call a a patient uh, compensation fair market value data offering and um it's not ready just yet but it, it is to come but we we routinely do get asked for some guidance on that and and try to provide folks with the comfort to know here's what we're seeing in certain regions for certain types of activities. Um, I, I attended a lawyer's conference once and a room was talking about this issue. And I stood up and said, there's no difference in how much you're paid in a clinical trial based on what part of the United States you're in. Uh, 
phase three trials almost always have a typical payment that's offered to participants. And a hundred lawyers in the room were calling me a liar and saying that's impossible, right? Um, that there's no difference based on where you live, that New York City and Oklahoma City have the same uh, visit payment. But I mean, as a site who's dealt with this, um, remember getting offered $48 for subjects at my site to get reimbursed by Roshan PRA. And I said, how about we do 100 for them? Um, it's more in line with what people are paid in Boston. And I got an email back that said the teams met, we're willing to do $52, right? And it's a really typical um, experience for sites. It's, it's not like we're getting the money, you know? Um, so it's a I think there's a lot of fear about paying people too much that there's no evidence that this has any issues. Nobody who's been in trouble for paying someone too much. The Edvara gives out maybe annual conferences by Luke Alinas, um, who's a PhD over there in philosophy and ethics. And all he says every time is nobody's paying enough. There's there's basically no limit. We haven't seen a limit. He gets asked the question, have you ever seen a study that paid too much? He's like, not in the last several years. You know, so I think people might be scared, not understanding that the ethics of this are totally fine. If you don't have the budget, that's a different question. But I don't think there's a, there's certainly no fair market value related issue on it being unethical. Jefferson, we uh, I think because of some of our audio connection uh, snags, we lost a bit of time and we are at the top of the hour. Can I give you 30 seconds for a final thought? Yeah, thanks. Thanks for the topic. Jeff Smith, co-founder of, uh, of, of Trial Clinical Research Software, now exited. Would love to follow up on this topic. Thank you, Nelson, so much for highlighting the, the literature. Two questions I hope we get deep, deeper into for the next time. One is Nelson's uh, comment on getting clear about the barriers. And second, what should be the limits? What should be the levels? If we look at what happened to the NCAA, it was absurd that athletes were generating millions of dollars and getting paid nothing, but now they're in a world of some degree of chaos. Maybe chaos is good, but maybe there should be standards. We'd love to talk about those standards in the future. Thanks for taking my call. Jeff, thank you. Amir, any closing thoughts today? Yeah, I'm really uh, grateful to everyone, but there's definitely a topic we're gonna have to come back to that definitely lots for us to try and solve, right? Absolutely. I want to thank um, Adam for setting up today's topic. Ellen and Wayne, thank you for joining in as co-hosts and helping us to get this one going. Uh, Nelson, Sophie, Fran, Jeff, uh, Brad, thank you for coming up and sharing some of your perspectives uh, today. Uh, stay tuned. We are going to take a pass next weekend for the uh, Memorial Day weekend. So if you're taking three days off, I'm giving you permission for a fourth day, but hopefully you'll enjoy uh, that weekend. We're gonna pick things up again on June 3rd, getting back into uh, endpoint selections for decentralized trials. Join us then. In the meantime, stay well. Happy Clinical Trials Day.